This is Songwriter, the podcast of stories and answer songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today we have a brand new song from Ben Glover, but first, two pieces of short fiction by an author who wears his geography on his sleeve. My name is Tom Franklin. I live in Oxford, Mississippi, where I am a professor of creative writing. I am married to a poet named Beth Ann Fennelly. I'm also a writer. I write stories and novels. The truth is that everything I've written takes place in the area where I grew up. I don't know, it's just, it's lodged there. And I just can't get away from it or past it or away from certain events there. Some of them not good. So the place haunts me. I go there a lot and, and just try to feel the past. For today's episode, Tom chose two pieces of short fiction. I do call those short shorts, but you can also call them flash fiction. Esquire magazine had one on their back page several years ago, and they called it snap fiction. Some of them are more like prose poems. Some are more like poetry. Some are just, you know, little narratives. But I love the form, and I find it quite hard to make one that works. So these two that we're talking about today, my wife's good-looking friends, and I need you, uh, both came to me relatively quickly. And um, I have to say I struggled a bit with both of them because with so few words... You really can't let anything go astray. Everything's got to be right on the mark. Every cylinder firing, you know, every piston up and down, right? Everything working. This is Tom Franklin reading My Wife's Good-Looking Friends, followed by I Need You. We were Southerners at the beach in Indiana, which at first I didn't even know had beaches. And on clear days across the gray-green lake, You can see a tiny outline of Chicago as if somebody sketched it in pencil. It's a private beach, like they all are now. 50 yards of prime white sand and a posse of chairs, rafts, and umbrellas. It came with the rented house of my wife's good-looking friends who vacation here each July. Once in a while, like now, On the way from Alabama to visit my wife's other friends in Chicago, we'll stop. I don't like to visit my wife's good-looking friends because I am average-looking, or less. Everybody says so without quite saying so. How'd you get her to marry you? You must be rich. My wife is good-looking herself and fits in among her good-looking friends here on the beach all of them in bikinis and speedos and with dunes and sawgrass and everybody's phone up. But put me in the pictures and I'm like a bearded thug who wandered in from some dark alley. When I offer to take the group shot, everybody smiles brighter. I prefer my wife's ugly friends. They're from a different period in her life, rehab or grad school. They're the ones in Chicago. They're all fat, and their duplex has the AC full blast, and there are trays of food everywhere, and they never stop eating. 
The men are balding and red in the face, and sometimes the women's feet swell and they can't wear shoes. When we visit, I stand outside by the giant grill holding my Bud Light, and I feel like the skinniest, best-looking motherfucker in the city. I still got all my teeth and a head of fulsome hair stirring in the beefy smoke. I wonder if my wife's good-looking friends have better-looking friends in some state better than Indiana. Conversely, do my wife's ugly friends in their ugly state have uglier friends yet? Think Oklahoma City or Topeka, Kansas. Think scars and birth defects, amputations. By now, all the good-looking people have folded their chairs and taken their phones up to the house. And I sit watching the sky darken and the water begin to chop. Then my wife texts that it's time to come in for dinner. They've ordered pizza from the good place. I gather my IPA beer and damp towel and stand and squint out at where the Chicago skyline used to be. There are plenty of dark alleys in that city where I could disappear, lurking with my thoughts and flaws. My good-looking wife safe across the water with all her good-looking friends. I need you. It was what he told her to say if an emergency happened. Just call, he said. They'd been married maybe a week, lying together on their new sofa, still naked and warm wet from fucking. If something bad ever happens, just call the plant and say, I need you. I'll drop everything and come. You won't even clock out, she asked, running her fingers down his belly. No, he said. He was beginning to get hard again, but the point was they had this established arrangement. And after he left for work each morning, Millwright, Alabama Power, 14 bucks an hour, benefits. After she had finished cleaning or baking or gardening or whatever and become bored, when someday she would roam the house looking out all the windows, she'd wonder what kind of emergency meant she got to call and say, I need you. Certainly if a stranger broke in and attacked her, or a tornado happened, maybe, or a fire. But when the tornado finally came, she huddled in the tub with the cat and a bottle of vodka. And a few months after that, when she fell asleep on the sofa and left the burner on beneath the frying pan, she brandished the fire extinguisher and blew out the flames and silenced the alarms herself. That afternoon, like many afternoons, buzzed on screwdrivers, she fantasized about calling and saying it breathlessly, I need you, then hanging up and waiting for him to burst in. As it turned out, he never would. A miscarriage would not warrant the call, nor would the discovery of her heart murmur, or when the cat died, or the second miscarriage. Days would pass when she wouldn't even think about needing him. He came home at night dirty and sweaty, ate what she served, watched sports and drank Budweiser. Sometimes he'd want sex after his shower, but she had grown unable to give herself to him or to accept anything either. What was she now, 45, 50? And what of him, 
Did he work each day, welding metal rods or changing fuses or greasing fittings, waiting for her to call? What if each time the control room phone buzzed, he had paused at his task? Had the not being needed depleted him the way not needing had her? Or was the fitting he greased that of Wanda, the forklift operator? Finding the note in his overalls pocket had not warranted a call either. When she had her heart attack there in the kitchen and slid down along the cabinet until she was sitting on the floor, then lying on it, the pressure on her chest like an elephant pushing down with its foot. She looked across the ceramic tile and up the opposite cabinet to the telephone. for the song written in response. So my name is Ben Glover, and I am a singer and a songwriter. And I am based in Nashville, Tennessee, though originally from County Antrim in Northern Ireland. So there are two Ben Glovers who are both based in Nashville and both write songs. The other Ben Glover, he is he writes songs for commercial country market and for the the Christian market. It was always quite funny when churches would say we're wanting to use your music and I was going, I'm not sure I'm not sure you do. I'm not sure you do want to use my song at your service. So I made my first trip to Nashville in 2007. I came over for a week to do some co-writing. I'd never co-written a song in my life. So it was a brand new experience and just coming to Nashville from small town Ireland was like, the windows were blowing open. I just loved the city. I decided then to spend more time in Nashville. It's a small enough community. So I started meeting kind of my tribe and I was so lucky that one of the first people I met in Nashville was Mary Gaucher. I feel that Mary somewhat took me under her wing, certainly creatively, and we started writing songs together pretty much right away. So I've been writing songs with Mary for 10 or 11 years. And then through Mary, I was introduced to other writers. I I write a lot with uh, Gretchen Peters, a whole bunch of of amazingly gifted writers. And that's the beauty of Nashville. There's a lot of them here. There's There's a lot of them here. We are exposed to music as a child through our parents, our older siblings, and that's how I heard Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson and Hank Williams and Chris Christopherson. My father would have listened to, to those artists, as well as a lot of Irish folk. And the thing that those two genres have in common is that they're all about stories. The South reminds me an awful lot of of Ireland in many ways, especially Mississippi. My wife is from Mississippi, so I've spent a lot of time in Mississippi, Oxford, Mississippi in particular, and the the Delta. It's interesting. It's very green, and it's the last thing I was expecting was to see this green, these green fields in Mississippi. But it reminds me an awful lot of, of Ireland, the kind of lush green fields.
And then there's that thing that it's it's that invisible thing, and I do believe it's the turbulent history of both places. It's very hard to say exactly what it is, but you know, coming from the north of Ireland where I grew up during the political troubles, and and Ireland is just it, it is a trouble. It's always been a troubled country, and. And that somehow makes you, when you grow up in that environment, I think it, it, it um, sharpens your senses. Especially when you go into other places that may have had a turbulent history. You, there's something there that, I don't know, maybe we're just, we, we connect in a different way. So every time I've gone to Mississippi, I've felt that. It's as if the history is just there. History is just right over your shoulder. And there's, there's the ghosts of history. That, that, that's the connection, really. I felt at home here. Um, I didn't feel like a stranger here. I, I know growing up in Northern Ireland during the time of the Troubles that you get very good at being able to read a scenario quite quickly because of the time you had to do for it, so for your own safety sometimes. And I only realised that years later. You, you get quite good at figuring out people and situations quite quickly you're pretty good at reading the room and then you know there's a sensitivity that you have to the past because you know that it has destroyed families and that it is completely inhumane at times and you you grow up seeing how people's beliefs can completely overtake them and 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 these beliefs are what they fight for so much so that they that they they may destroy their own lives they may destroy other lives you know, Ireland, Northern Ireland, the weight of history is still is still there. When I go to Mississippi, I do feel the weight of history is still there. I love the Southern Gothic genre of literature anyhow. I first heard about Tommy five or six years ago. I went to Oxford, Mississippi. There's a wonderful bookshop there called Square Books. And when I go to Mississippi and Oxford, I disappear there for hours at a time. And I remember asking the staff in there, could you recommend, um, you know, a, a local Southern Gothic from that area, a writer? And they told me to read Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter by, by Tommy. That book really made an impact on me because what Tommy is great at, he, he creates these characters that are so deeply flawed and they're suffering. And, but yet there's something you still pull for them. They're, they're blinded by their own suffering. We all can be. We all can be blinded by our own suffering. Human beings can tell ourselves stories and they may or may not be true, but we can still believe them and they dictate how we live our lives. It sounds as if I'm only attracted to things that are very dark and troubled, and, and maybe I am, because maybe that's how the light gets through. I know that's kind of badly paraphrasing Leonard Cohen there, but there's something very endearing about the, the darkness, because that's where compassion can arise. When I read I Need You, it was like, wow, you know, it's under 500 words. There's not a lot, not a lot of information given away here. How do I jump in here? What what am I connecting with? Because I always want to connect. What's the humanity here in these characters? And I didn't just want to retell the story because I didn't think that's what that's what it was here to do either. But there was also, do I really like these characters? I'm not sure. I'm not sure I do like these characters. You know, and and I and I didn't want to dislike them. So I was going, well, whoa, you know, there must be some goodness here. And then you go, okay, well, yes, yeah, the stories are telling themselves. It's the stories that are that are 
bringing out their flaws. So I wrote this song with two of my, my closest collaborators, um, Nielsen Hubbard and Joshua Britt. And we have, a, we have a band called The Orphan Brigade. What we did was we then, okay, let's move forward in history. So we kind of traveled in time and the character who's the voice in our song is a, is a composite character of the two in I Need You and a little bit from My Wife's Good Looking Friends. And we put that character into the future where they had lost their partner and that changed everything for us. We still wanted to keep the flawed sense of their character in the song, even though they were in, in, in the future. And in the chorus, the line is, you know, we waited for tornadoes, fires to burn again. If you never asked me, how could I come bursting in? And that was all about the, the character in I Need You, the female character, wanted, wanted a hero, wanted some heroic gesture of love from, from the husband that she never got. The darkness and the pain and the sorrow has every as much right to be here as the joy and the beauty and the happiness, okay? We just live in a society where we're told, don't look at the darkness, it's all okay, stay positive, just look at the light. If we do that, we then don't allow ourselves to experience the full gamut of the human experience. I do believe that the better we become at, at, at sitting and turning towards the, the pain and the suffering and trying to understand it in a compassionate and kind way, it opens up our capacity then to experience the joy and the happiness. The two are, the two are interlinked. One of the definitions of compassion is you turn towards the suffering and the pain and you open to it and you acknowledge it. I love doing that in songwriting, turning towards the, the, the troubling, the, the pain, the heartbreak, going, well, it, it, what is this? This is, this is beautiful and dark and murky because and, knowing from that is going to come this compassion and this light and this kindness and this joy. So in a weird way, when you write, when, when I'm writing about the darkness, I'm also writing about the light too, because they're both, it's the same thing. It's all the same thing. This is Ben Glover and the Orphan Brigade with a rough demo of their song, Clocking In, Clocking Out, I Need You.
was Clocking In, Clocking Out, I Need You by Ben Glover and the Orphan Brigade. The next episode features Ashley C. Ford reading an excerpt from her memoir, Somebody's Daughter, and a song written in response by B. Steadwell. Songwriter is 100% independently produced. If you want to support the artists and me, the producer, please consider a premium subscription from Apple Podcasts. You can also go to songwriterpodcast.com forward slash donate. Five-star ratings and reviews and kind words on social media and out there in the real world are always appreciated too. You can always get early access to the Songwriter Podcast at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, be sure to check out the Paste Podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Finally, as always, thanks to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe. Acoustic Cafe.